KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with someone you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One, sponsored by your Delaware Valley Honda dealers. Make memories during happy Honda days. Lenny gets on base, steals, he comes around in the first inning, and he scored. He is dirty. He is sweating. I'll just never forget. I've got the bat in my hand. He comes in, and he sits down, and he spits out all of his chew, and I'm watching him. He puts in another chew, and then he lights up the smoke, and he takes a big puff. Mind you, he's just sweating and dirty, and he just looks up, and he goes, Welcome to the big leagues, kid. And our guest this week, Kevin Stocker, former Philly shortstop, member of the 1993 National League Championship team, and now radio analyst for the Phils, uh, working with the great Scott Fransky. And Kevin, thanks so much for the time. You are welcome. Glad to be here. So to start, how much do you enjoy the radio broadcasting gig? I know broadcasting has You've done it for a while. You know, how much day to day do you just enjoy being able to kind of share your knowledge? I'm, I've had so much fun. You know, I've been doing this for about 20 years, believe it or not. Now, the radio is the new part. So it's been it's been a learning experience. But fortunately, the Phillies gave me a chance over the last few years. So I've had so much fun, I, you know, doing the prep, getting to know the players, certainly working with Scott. You know, I work with Greg Murphy, even all the TV guys. You know, we just have so much fun and we understand that the game has to be fun. It has to be fun for us in the booth. So, yeah, it's been a blast. Now, in saying that, it always helps when the team wins. Right. So when they're winning which is I've been there full time now for a year when they win. It's a lot more fun when they lose. It's a little bit tougher. But yeah, it's been great. And you mentioned you've done this for a while with a lot of TV work as a play by play guy. I can tell you the difference between television and radio. It is a totally different animal. How have you found the different approach from when you're analyzing on a TV broadcast as when you're analyzing on radio? It took some practice. It really did. So this is the way that I think of it, right? So being on TV for years, doing all those college games, I look at it as on television, the analyst is kind of the guy, right? Because you have time. You, have, you can ask, I could ask for replays. I could ask for specific things that I see that I could, that only I would know as a player or another player might know. On the radio, it's very different. The play-by-play guy, Scott, you know, Scott is the man. He has to be able to paint that picture, which he does so well. So we have to be careful not to step on his toes. But in saying that, being concise, but still being able to get a point across that the fan understands, okay, now I get what's happening in front of me. It's been a challenge. And I think it's a good challenge. I think that's something that I still have to work on over the next coming years will be being quick to the point, being specific, but still trying to get the point across as to what I'm trying to relay to the fans or teach or whatever it might be. So that has really been the biggest challenge, but I love it. I love it because radio also has this casual atmosphere where I can be somewhat casual. You know, we start right when the game starts, we go on the air. There's not a lot, you know, I don't have to look, well, I hear this all the time. You don't have to look too pretty sort of thing, but being able to have that casual atmosphere on the radio is fun. So that's the challenge. Just being quick to the point. Did you always figure broadcasting was going to be something you pursued? Like even back, playing days you know was it something in the back of your head you always thought would be part of it or was it something that an opportunity presented itself and you said okay let's give this a try yeah no it it was uh it was kind of a kick in the pants by my wife is what it was so you know I retired officially in 2002 and broadcasting you know back then you're so tired from playing and traveling and there's a reason that you retire. And a lot of it has to do with losing the edge or just getting the burnout, whatever it is. For me, I was done. I'm like, okay, the playing days are over. Broadcasting wasn't a thing. I get a phone call from my agent. He says, what do you think about, you know, doing some college games for this new company out of New York? And I immediately said, no, I was like, I, 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 I want to relax. What do I want to do that for? And literally my wife was like, you need to do this. You got to find this new path. And so I'm like, okay. 
talking about the game has never been an issue for me. I love to talk. I love to teach. I love to have fun. So yeah, that's how it started. It wasn't like this dream of mine to be this broadcaster. Once I got into it and realized my first game, even after that first time I got into, I had a lot to learn. I was like, man, this is really cool. It keeps me in the game. Um, it was probably best for me to maybe start at the college level because the kids were so accessible at the time. This was back in 02, 03, 04, early 2000s when college baseball really started to get on TV. And I was part of that. And it was great. And then being up in the Northwest, um, I hope you, hopefully the, all the fans know where that's at. But that's where we raised our kids. So the Pac-12, when it was still basically in existence, was here. And they started their network. So they asked me to come over and be a part of that with JT Snow. I did the North games. He did the South games. And off I went. So it was one of those things where it wasn't on my mind when I retired. But as I started doing it, it became a priority and I fell in love with it. How did the opportunity with the Phils come together? Because I know... You know, they kind of had almost a season's worth. I don't know if tryouts is the right word, but they mixed and matched a lot of guys. And I think you had done a handful of games a few years before that, if I remember correctly as well. Like, what's the the path that brings you back to Philly? That's a great question. So I, I think it was as far back as 2015. Uh, they had asked me, Rob Brooks called and said, hey, what do you think about just filling in for one series? I think it was kind of like, hey, we heard soccer was doing this. Let's give it a try. I'm like, sure. So literally, I think they flew, I can't remember where, but they flew me somewhere. I did a three-game set on the radio. I'm like, oh, this is kind of fun. And I was not great on the radio, but I mean, it was cool. And then in 18, they brought in the three Kevins because that's when Larry uh, Anderson was really going to start cutting back. So that's when I did 30 games or so, roughly plus or minus four or five games. That was in 18, 2018. Then, of course, the whole mess with COVID and so forth. And then Kevin Franson took a different job and they called me back again and said, would you want to go through this process again? Um, I had to think about that. I had to think about, do I want to go through another round of, you know, f this was four people uh, a year ago. It was going to be more people. And I'm like, you know what? This is it. Because I, I had been doing it for so long, college baseball, and, and we've seen what's going on with all the networks was up in the air on what was going to happen. And I'm 53 now. Do I really want to keep doing this? And the answer was yes, but at the next level. And so I said, yeah, let's do it again. But I had more experience at that time on the radio. So that's that's kind of the progression of how the how I got got kind of this gig with the Phillies was just over the last seven years or so or so right in there just a little bit at a time until now I got a full-time gig and it's been fun. So let's talk about Kevin Stocker the player growing up was baseball your number one sport or were you doing a lot of different things? Yeah that's a great question I did everything I did them all but I, if you asked me out of high school what I was going to do in high school I wanted to play basketball. Basketball was my sports quick paced I was a little shooting guard and I loved it and believe it or not I was in high school I was recruited to go play both you know schools like Eastern, Gonzaga. Now, Gonzaga was not the program that they are now. Right. Up here, but, you know, but they wanted me to do both. And I was like, there's just no way I can, I can do talk about a grind. I wasn't interested in both. And so I kind of decided if I'm going to continue to play at, at different levels, baseball was going to be it for me. And I, I did enjoy it, but it wasn't my first. If you go way back, I mean, when I was a kid, I was on a bowling team for a little while. I did football, which I kind of grew out of that. I didn't like the contact so much. A big time golfer, love golfing. So I did everything I could get my hands on. But again, I grew up in the Northwest. So if you're going to grow up in the Northwest, you better be able to adjust season to season because it was really tough, especially back then, to just be in one sport. You had to do them all to have fun. And so, yeah, baseball was more my second pick, but it was a good pick. But that being said, what is your earliest memory of baseball success? Like something you did that either won a game or you won a championship or just had a big hit in a big spot. Like, do you have an earliest memory like that? Well, you know, my memory is so bad. <laughs> this is such a test. I think that my earliest memory of something like that would probably go as far back as like 13, 14-year-old Babe Ruth. So we would do these Babe Ruth tournaments up here. 
and into some tournaments. And I can I can remember some good tournaments there. Um, now that was when I was pitching and playing you know, shortstop, you know, but you go back 13, 14, 15, and, you know, I was able to make it to the big leagues, but I was really good at baseball, baseball and bat, certain sports I could really excel at. So for me, that was, that was a time when I started to really make that jump, you know, where I was starting to pass everybody in my ability, whether it was hitting or just understanding the game. So I had some good games there. And then probably in college, you know, when, when I got, when I played at university of Washington, I know there was a couple of tournaments where I was a leading hitter. I, and again, I don't get to say that very often where I was a leading hitter guy. I was more of a defender, but there's a specific couple of tournaments in college where I got some cool things. But, you know, I don't hang on to those awards a whole lot. They're they just for me, it was more about the teammates and uh, success and so forth as a team. So if that makes any sense. How did all the other sports you played, did those skill sets help you in baseball? Because so many kids now are so one track like they, you know, if they show an acumen for baseball, they're just playing baseball did playing basketball even bowling golf like all those things maybe not in the moment but when you look back do you realize that certain skill sets from other sports helped you in baseball well that's what i believe 100 percent. i mean it's it's quick twitch it's in basketball it's quick and being fast and being conditioned your coordination skills are all different in every sport same in golf golf and baseball coordination part of it there's no doubt that each sport if you play all those sports the coordination parts of those sports carry into each other I don't think there's any argument with that. However, I do think if you're, you can be a kid or somebody who was really bad at basketball or, or really, you know, I shouldn't say bad, but it's just not your sport that you excel at and you just can't, you know, you just can't get it. You could be really good as a, a baseball player or really good as a golfer. So I get that not everybody crosses over the same because not everybody excels at each sport. The other thing is you have to divide. For me, I divided it up. So where I'm talking about coordination skills from sport to sport, but some other sports, for example, bowling taught me how to lose because we were terrible. There was four of us on a team. I was young. I think I was 10, 11 years old and we lost. And it was like, here's this competitive kid. And I used to try to do, I wanted to be good at everything I did, but as a team, we stunk. I mean, we were losing as bullets. So that taught me how to be someone to accept some defeat, right? So as an adult, I can look back and go, yeah, this is what I learned. As a 10 year old little whiny kid, I was ticked that I was losing. Like I didn't understand that part. So I do believe in the crossover. I do believe for me in playing all the sports that you can. However, if you do play a sport and you're not good at it and you just can't get it and it's frustrating you, it's not worth playing. You're not going to learn enough out of that sport. But I know it's very specialized now. I get it. That's the way that it is. I think it's really tough to move forward if you're not necessarily specialized now. But if it was me, like I had all my kids, they played everything they could get their hands on. That's what I believed in. When during your baseball career did the idea of playing professional baseball kind of shift from the dream that every kid has to the, if I work hard, I've got a legitimate chance of this happening. Was there a, a moment when maybe a coach talked to you, you realized scouts were there to see you or, or something that kind of put it in a different phase and how you looked at the possibilities of where the sport could take you? hundred percent. And that specific time was right after my freshman year of college. That's how late it was. So I got into, I went to University of Washington. I didn't get drafted out of high school. I wasn't that kid. Now I, I did a lot of tryouts and so forth, but it, it was going to be a late draft and I wanted to go to school. So I go to Cole, I go to school, I go to University of Washington. I'm a freshman. I learned how to switch hit that year, literally in the fall, messing around with my coach. He says, Hey, you look pretty good left-handed. Now I could really run when I was younger. He said, maybe we should try that. So I did it all fall. Then I was able to start as a freshman 
after that year, I did pretty well. And I'm like, you know what? This might be something that I could progress and do as a career or at the next level. It was after that freshman year, literally, I, you know, what is that? Uh, April, May, summer, May, at the end of that year, I was like, okay, I'm going to go for it. I literally said, I'm going to go for it. Now, how do I do that? So I was that guy that was like, all right, here's what I have to do in the summer. I got to go play here. I got to start lifting weights, you know, as simple as uh, I, I distinctly remember, for example, you know, those getting your forearm stronger, doing those those squeeze things every night. So every night I'm doing 100 of those for the entire year. Like I just I kept doing that my entire year, my sophomore year and junior year. I set those specific goals and it worked out. So that was the time for me. But it was late. I mean, I was 18, 19 years old when I decided that's what I want to do. You mentioned pitching. By the time you get to Washington, are you just shortstop or were you playing any other positions? No, my coach came and saw me pitch in high school and I was a pitcher on the team and one of the and after I pitched in a game, I can't remember what it was in a tournament. I did okay, but he came, he was very clear. After the game, he came up and he said, No, we love you having coming here. We do not want you at a pitcher. So just just know that coming in. I'm like, okay. And that was fine with me. I was done with the, you know, playing shortstop and I would pitch and then my arm would hurt for two or three days and trying to play. I was done with that part of it. Just wanted to play shortstop. So you get drafted by the Phils in ninety one. When did you know the Phillies were really interested in you? Because I think it was second round they took you. So obviously you were high on their board. Like, did you have a lot of talks with them? Or I've talked to some people who get drafted that high and they honestly had no idea that Team X was that that interested in them. Where was it on the spectrum for you as far as when you heard they were the ones that, that called your name? The Philadelphia Phillies were not even on my list at all on radar. I had not talked to the Phillies. I knew some of the scouts. You know, believe it or not, I have an older brother who's my freshman year was a fifth year senior and played one year in the minor leagues with the Phillies. So they knew who I was, but I, you know, I, it might be different now with the draft, but back then two, three weeks before the draft, you're getting phone calls from scouts. You know, they're, they're trying to find out, will you sign? What round would you sign in? How can we get you to move? And those calls came from the White Sox, the Cubs, the Yankees. Those were the three big ones that were, I'm like, okay, I never, I don't remember one conversation with the Phillies, but I knew I was going to go high. The rumor was out there. Soccer's going to go in the high being the first three rounds. I said, great. First day comes. Uh, and I, sorry if I get off track, but the first day comes, I still have to go to school. This was the first three days of June. UW would go in, you know, Washington, their school went another two weeks. So I had finals. I go take tests. I come back after the day, no phone call. Now there's, there's no internet, there's no cell phones, nothing like that back in 91. Nothing. I didn't hear anything. I mean, it gets to be about 10, 10.30 at night, p.m. out here. So it's really late on the East Coast. I get a phone call, and can you believe it was Lee Thomas? It's like, hey, this is Lee Thomas with the Phillies. I wanted to let you know that we took you in the second round. And I'm like, who is Lee Thomas? Like, literally, I'm like, I had no idea. I think I even spoke with Jim Fregosi, believe it or not, at the time. And uh, I come to find out that I lived in Seattle. My parents were over across the state. My parents were out of town. They didn't have a phone number. They couldn't get a hold of me. They couldn't get a hold of any way to get to contact me until late. So at that point, it was pretty amazing. But the Phillies were just, uh, it was such a surprise. And it was a great surprise, but it was definitely a surprise. Did you know anything about Philadelphia and or the Phillies at that point? Like you talked about, you hadn't talked to any of the, you had no idea, but were you familiar at all with the area or the team really? No, I hadn't been across the United States ever. I mean, I was what, 21 at the time. I had never flown to that side of the of the country. The only thing I knew about Mike Schmidt is I had another older brother who, I mean, uh, Mike Schmidt thought the Phillies was Mike Schmidt. I had a, an older brother who, when I was a kid, would collect baseball cards and loved Mike Schmidt. Other than that, I couldn't tell you how they were doing. I couldn't tell you their coaches. I already told you that. I didn't know Bill Giles. I mean, literally, I didn't know anything really about the Phillies at all. So it was, uh, it, it was, I mean, even when I think about it now, it was such a, it was such a weird day, <laughs> believe it or not. 
So when you sign and what is life like when you start playing pro baseball? I think you went to Spartanburg. Was that your first stop? Yeah. Yeah. What like what's the transition from a level of talent you're surrounded with to a now it's pro. Now everybody's kind of in it for themselves and it's a business. And what was the adjustment like on multiple fronts? That's a great question. Uh, well, let me say this, that the biggest adjustment, I, I just had this conversation the other day. The biggest adjustment is by far when you go, when you're in college, you're being told where to go, what time is practice, what to wear. I mean, everything is regimented to the time. Now, back then we had long practices. There's a lot of rules in now, but it was very much, you're doing this, you're told your coach could yell at you, whatever. That first day in Spartanburg, it's immediately apparent to me that no one is going to be scheduling stuff out. If you want extra work, you got to go get it. All of a sudden, you're living in an apartment and washing clothes. You have your own bank account. You're doing some things and trying to play baseball and go through the frustrations. No one is going to baby you. Now, it's a little different maybe today because now you've got nutritionists and massage therapists and strength coaches. We had none of that back then. Um, so it was very clear to me that you were go you were in this as a business. Even though you're trying to win, you're on your own if you need work. And you're right. I went to Spartanburg, South Carolina. So the greatest thing about that, the story about that is, remember I told you I'd never been to that side of the country. So I had signed my contract. I had two bags. I've got my baseball bag and my clothing bag. I fly all the way out to Spartanburg, South Carolina. And I get off the plane and I'm thinking to myself, there's going to be somebody here to pick me up, right? Somebody. I get off the plane and there is nobody there. And I don't know what to do. I remember, I have no idea what to do. So I, I get on the phone and I call collect to my older brother who had played a year with the Phillies. And I said, hey, man, I, I'm here in Spartanburg and nobody is here to pick me up. I just expected it. And he started laughing at me. He said, man, get your stuff, get in a, in a cab, take a taxi and just go to the ballpark. It's like 1, 1.30 in the afternoon. Out there. So I do. I get in the cab. I go to the ballpark. Out in left field, there's a big gate that's open and they're out there practicing in the afternoon. And it is hot, man. It is so hot. I did not have any idea it was that hot. So I walk, I'm literally walking with my two bags. I walk in the left field gate and start walking down to the dugout. The team's all practicing. And my coach was Mel Roberts, if you remember Mel, who was mm -hmm. on that coaching in 93. He comes over and says, hello, how are you? He takes me inside, shows me my locker. I get a uniform and uh, out I go. And I, I have no idea what I'm doing. And uh, I go out and I hadn't remember now. I hadn't played anything. I hadn't played in a couple of weeks because our season had been over for a while. And so that's how it started. And then I didn't play in, in a game for seven or eight days. He just had me practice, work out, kind of get myself back acclimated. And then I started playing seven or eight days later and I stunk. Man, did I stink. I couldn't hit with a wood bat, but it progressed from there. I remember even that Mike Jewell was my roommate, came up to me after practice and says, Hey, uh, my name's Mike. You're going to be my roommate. And I'm like, where? Oh, we have an apartment because remember, I went into Long A, somebody had to be released. So whoever was released was his roommate. He left and I move in. And just like that, I'm off and running. So, yeah, it was uh, it was a trip. And then I got fortunate enough for my career that I spent two months at every level. So I went Spartanburg for a couple months. Season ended. I went down to extended league down in uh, Clearwater, went down there, learned some more of the Philly way sort of thing, I would say. The next season, I came into spring training, started in Clearwater, right? I did that for a couple months, got moved up to Reading. And then from there, the next year, I came into spring training with the Phillies, got to know some of the guys in 93, and then started the year in Scranton. And then I got called up halfway through. So it was about two and a half months at every level. So I got lucky that way, for sure. Just as an aside, you mentioned the wood bat. How much experience had you had swinging a wood bat prior none. to not like none at no. all? No summer no. league or anything like that? No. No, because back then we were still using aluminum. So even in the summer league, 
you know, now you have summer leagues. It, it was, let me back up. It was Cape Cod and it was the Alaskan League. We're really the only two wood bat leagues back then. And I didn't play in either of those. I played in a summer league up in Washington State and it was basically semi-pro. So, I mean, it was back then it was our Husky team called the Husky Fever. We used aluminum bats and we were playing against a team, for example, called the Seattle Studs. And it was a bunch of 30 some year olds that just got out of baseball. We'd play double headers and they'd have a keg, you know, in their dugout. I mean, it was just a different type of game. Nowadays, everything is wood bat in the summer. So yeah, my experiences was, was super limited. Our season ended at University of Washington. I got my hands on two wood bats. One of them was broken. And so I had about two weeks to try to learn how to hit with a wood bat. And uh, clearly I needed a lot more than two weeks. <laughs> We will get back to our conversation on one-on-one with Kevin Stocker in just a moment. But right now, it's the holiday season, folks. And the holidays mean different things to everyone. But whatever the holidays mean to you, get the most out of it in a new vehicle from our friends at Honda. Whether it's traveling to the holiday family dinner in a spacious, efficient Accord hybrid or heading to a hike to burn it off in a powerful, adventure-ready CRV hybrid, your holiday adventure awaits with a new Honda during Happy Honda Days. Contact your local Honda dealer today. And now let's get back to our conversation on one-on-one with former Phillies shortstop and current Phillies radio analyst, Kevin Stocker. So you talk about climbing that minor league ladder. At what point did you start to become really confident that if you stayed healthy, you were on pace that you were going to play in the big leagues? Like, was there a, a point where you started to feel like you were having enough success, you were playing well, you were in the right mind space, that it really became something that it was, even if you didn't articulate this to anyone internally, you felt it was more when, not if. So, you know, very, most of the players, especially at this level, are going to be very confident. I was no, I wasn't a whole lot different. I was very confident in my ability. It was just a matter of figuring out what they needed. So to answer your question, that first summer in Spartanburg, I struggled. When I went down to that extended, I keep calling it extended spring, but it's like a winter type of baseball mm-hmm. down there. After that, I felt really good about my progression. I think okay, I think I'm going to start moving up. I get it. I started to figure out the wood bat. Um, they started teaching me how to bunt and use the field. Uh, Don Blasting game was a big part of that. Guys that were down there and the things that they were saying, and, the, and I was very, very coachable. Um, I felt that was a big part of it. So I learned really fast. You don't have to tell me twice. I think it was after that winter, which was my first full year. I was 21. That's part of it. I was older than a lot of the other kids too. I felt like I was going to progress pretty quick. I didn't think it was going to be a year and a half, two years. I thought it would be, you know, four or five year process. But I think it was after that point that I figured I had a pretty good shot. And then once I got through Reading the second year, I had a really good year. I knew that I could play defense because I was going to be a defensive guy. And to be honest, and I'm not lying, I didn't do a lot of, you know, back then it was the newspaper. That's what you, you know, who played last night, USA Today, whatever it is. I didn't really look at that stuff until maybe when I finished that second year at Reading. And then and the following year, I got invited in. Then I kind of started peeking up at the big league team. I, I don't know that I could tell you when I was in Reading who was playing in the big leagues. I was so focused on where I was. That's where my focus was. And I believe that is one of the reasons I was able to do as well as I did and progress was because I could focus on the task in hand. I wasn't looking up, oh, did so-and-so get injured today? What do they need? Am I going to get called up? A lot of players do that and they get lost because they're not focusing on what's at hand. So yeah, I know that sounds silly, but right after that first year, at the end of that first year, I felt pretty good about progressing up through pretty quickly. So given what you just said, in 93... The Phillies are, they come out of the gates and it's just a magical season. They're good. They're winning games. They're winning some games in dramatic, crazy fashion. They're capturing people's imaginations. But the one 
probably weak point on the team at this point is shortstop. I remember Juan Bell was playing it and he wasn't hitting much and he struggled in the field and they were getting so much production everywhere else. It was pretty obvious where there was an upgrade needed. You're at Scranton. How much are you paying attention to this? Especially like you said, now you know the guys, there's a connection there and you're a phone call away. Like, how are you handling that? And how are you keeping that in perspective so that you don't lose, you know, the focus on the day-to-day and get get away from yourself? That's a really good question. There's a lot wrapped up into that. I, I will tell you that the, to answer that, one of the things is I, I was invited into spring training. So I got to know Juan Bell a little bit. I got to see his game. Remember, this is now once I got into AAA, now you start poking around like what's going on up there, kind of like, what your question is i got to see how juan played and i'll be honest and i liked juan fine but he was very different than me i was very much an abc i'm gonna catch that ball at all costs i think juan was more trying to be more offensive and things like that it wasn't that i noticed the phillies need a defensive shortstop i just i that was my game that's who i was coming out of spring i went in i had a great spring training in 93 and I caught everything and the and the stuff coming from boa and the coaches was all really good in my head so when i went to triple a I'm like, okay, I think it's going to be a matter of time. If I just keep doing these things, I feel pretty good about where I'm going to go. My first game in AAA at Scranton out of spring training, up, up, this is in Scranton. I think I had a hit or two, a double off the wall. I'm like, this is going to be great. And then I don't think I had another hit for like a month. I mean, this is where the challenge came. I knew that there was going to be an opportunity or could be a good opportunity at the next level, the big league level. So I knew that, but I could not figure out how to play where I was. I scuffled. I mean, I was hitting 230, 235 when I got called up. I was hitting leadoff. I was skidding on base and stealing a lot of bases, but man. So in my head, I'm like, I got no chance. I'm only hitting 230. I mean, I'm catching everything, but I lost sight of what they really wanted to. So I was still peeking up there and kind of watching a little bit, but I was stressed, man. I was, there was, that's where I, I think I had my first stress and worry as a player. Like, man, I'm just not performing and this is not going to go well. My job could be in jeopardy. And that's, again, that was a learning lesson because sure enough, in July, I got called up even with that. And so, again, you got to learn quick. And remember, you got to focus on what you're good at. And so, yeah, I, I was poking around a little bit, looking in the paper and how it was going up there. I didn't know it was going to be in July, but I certainly wasn't going to say no. How did you find out you're going to the big leagues? George Culver. So we had a, we had a, he was my manager, George Culver at AAA. We finished the game uh, in Scranton. We had packed up our stuff for a road trip the next day. So we're going to head out. We're going to fly out the next day for AAA. 11 o'clock, 11.30 at night. It was late. My phone rings and George Culver calls. And he says, hey, I just want to let you know you're getting called up to the big leagues. I thought he was joking. I'm like, this can't be right. And, and I said, I'm literally, I'm back. To, I'm hitting 235. Like, what do you? He goes, nope. You're just, they want you up there. They want you up there tomorrow. And I'm like, okay. So instantly you're like, huh. So the next morning I have to go get my stuff. So I go to the ballpark early, I don't know, six or seven o'clock, whatever time it was. And I get there and everything had already been taken over to the Scranton airport, all my bats, my bag. So I drive over to the airport and it's a really small airport. And back then you could, you know, I go up to the counter and said, Hey, they literally walked me out, like out the back door at the airport. I went through all the bat bags, got all my bats that I had put, I got my stuff, loaded up my car, drove down to Philadelphia that day. Um, That was how I found out. And so I get to Philly. I had never been to Philly. I don't know what Veteran Stadium is. I, I don't, we don't remember. There's no internet. There's no like, I don't know what it is. Completely lost. I finally make it, I get to the stadium, I park, I go in. Um, I got there fairly early. So Boa was there and those guys greeted me and that sort of thing, which was great. So I figured, all right, I'm here. I'm going to get my feet wet. I'm going to, you know, take a deep breath. 
Now, the best thing that ever happened is I'd gotten to know most of the guys in spring training. They knew what they were getting in me, and I was quiet, but I'd ask questions if I had to. They put me right next to Darren Dalton's locker, and uh, yeah, and then it started. And I went out, warmed up, I hit, I did all my stuff in BP. I came back in, and I'm like, okay, I'm not playing. And John Vukovic walks over, and there was a, a lineup placard next to the tunnel that would go down into the dugout, and you'd slide in these names with these nameplates. And he slid a name in that he had taken a plate and put athletic tape on it and wrote my name in with a Sharpie and put me in that eight spot for that game. Oh, my gosh. Was I nervous at that point? <laughs> but uh, yeah. So then my first game went 20 innings. I was just going to say it is amazing what sticks in your mind, because I remember I'm sitting in my friend Nick's bedroom. We're watching that entire game and it goes 20 innings against the Dodgers. You guys eventually win it because Lenny Dykstra, it's a I can see it, a double to left field. Eric Davis extended, can't catch it. It goes off the wall, game over. What was it like? I mean, you're making your big league debut, but then you're also in this 20-inning silly marathon, you know. What was it, the whole experience like? Man, uh, I should ask you because you have such a great memory of that. <laughs> But I do too, because it was my first game. Okay, so we, there's too many stories. So I'm going to tell you this. So during the course of the game, fortunately in the first inning, I got a double play. So I get this double play out of my way, kind of calms me down. I come back in, I get, we come underneath and Lenny Dice. Now remember, this is July 7th. So it is hot and humid. I mean, you grew up there, you know what it's like. So I get underneath and Lenny gets on base steals he comes around in the first inning and he scored he is dirty he is sweating he's just got you know and he's got chew coming all down his front and everything all this stuff and i'm underneath kind of getting loose i'm sitting there and i'll just never forget i've got the bat in my hand he comes in and he sits down and he spits out all of his chew and i'm watching him i'm like you know okay what's going on and he puts in another chew and then he lights up the smoke and he takes a big puff mind you he's just sweating and dirty and he just looks up and he goes welcome to the big leagues kid just like that and I'm like, I am in the big leagues, okay? Game goes 20 innings. During this game, I was 0 for 6 in the game. I didn't get a hit. I was 0 for 6. I had a walk. I had a strikeout. I think I had an error. I made a game-saving play in the ninth inning. But I also had a sacrifice bunt, which, which got Eisenreich over in the last inning. We come in. Everybody's excited. I am so excited, but exhausted. I've been up all day. So I come in. We're all high-fiving. I'm like, this is great. I get a tap on my shoulder at 1.30 in the morning, and it's Dennis Mankey. And he says, get a bat and get in the manager's office right now. So it's 1.30 in the morning. We just won. And I think I'm getting in trouble. I'm like, wait a minute. This can't be, this can't be happening. So I get my bat. Mind you, we are all in T-shirts and underwear because we just, I just taken off my uniform. And uh, I go into the manager's office and it's me and Dennis Mankey, the hitting coach. Larry Boa is in there because Larry's a shortstop. So he needs to go wherever I go. That's how that, I found out how that works. And then Jim Fregosi. And they were in there making adjustments to my swing at 1.30 in the morning. They had seen something in this game in just six plate appearances that I had or six at-bats that wasn't right from what they'd seen back in spring training. They remember. And so they made all these adjustments. I came in early, made some adjustments at the plate, and I got two hits, my first base hit and home run, and then I went on a tear. The point of that is, the reason I tell you that is because, yes, my game was 20 innings, but it was one of those times where I learned one of the most valuable lessons that I ever had in baseball, and that was Look, when you get called up to this level, you need to be ready to go from pitch one. It's not like you win a game, everybody's happy, but you you need to learn right away because that's how you, know, you can be in and out of this game quickly. And they knew that right away. And I learned I got to be ready to go. There's no like, yeah, enjoy the moment, but it's over quickly. So, yeah, it was uh, it's an experience I'll never forget. So 
for a lot of different reasons, as you can see, as I went from low to high to low to high. I mean, it was a roller coaster, but it was fun. And you mentioned the next game. I think the hit comes off Billy Swift and the home run comes off a of Rod Beck. What's the, when you get that first hit, you know, what is it like in your head? Uh, a couple of things. One, getting the first hit's really cool. The best part, the feeling about that hit was, as a baseball player, it was the adjustments worked. I mean, mm-hmm. I felt, I had been searching all year in AAA, like, why can I not hit? Like, I, I, whoever was down there, we couldn't figure it out. And I couldn't figure it out. I come up for one day and make a few adjustments. And I hit this sweet base hit opposite field that felt so good. It's like if you're a golfer, I don't know if you're a golfer or whatever you do, but it's like getting that last one that brings you back. I had been searching for that uh, feeling for the entire year. That was almost a bigger thing for me internally than just getting my first big league hit. Because I knew the big league hit would come eventually. It might have been a bunt or it might have been something like that. But that felt so good off of Billy Swift. The downside of the home run, which I'm not, I wasn't a home run guy. Again, it was making, I even had, had a line drive out, uh, I think my third at bat. So I had three really good swings. The home run, again, confirmed what I was doing at the plate. The downside is we were getting killed. I don't know if you know the score of the game, but I think we lost 13. I think it was like 13 to two. Yeah, it was and something like I that. I think yeah. we got pummeled, and that was in the eighth or ninth inning. So, but it was pretty cool because there were off a couple of guys that I admired, Swift and Beck. So that was cool. So you talked about making the connection with the players in spring training, and that's important under any circumstances. But this was a unique group of personalities, eccentric, outgoing, Philadelphia loved them because they were different. Could you have imagined coming up into that situation cold without that kind of spring training experience of getting to know the guys and them getting to know you? Do you think it would have made your life a lot more difficult had you not had kind of that little bit of track record in the spring that they understood what they were getting and you understood what was expected out of this group? I do. I, I don't know if the right word is difficult as opposed to, you know, maybe I wouldn't have had the success that I had. I certainly felt comfortable when, on my first day in my locker when I have 15 people from the press surrounding me with microphones. That was my first. And guess who was right next to me by by uh, making a point it was Darren Dalton. So he came down and stood in his locker with all these people around interviewing me. And he just listened to the interview. He didn't have to do that, but he knew who I was. He knew I was young. I think he knew that they needed me defensively. So he stood there and listened. And believe it or not, it was Darren who, after five or 10 minutes, he said, okay, that's enough, you guys, thanks. And he shooed him all away. And he literally looked at me and he goes, hey, he goes, good job. He goes, just never forget, you can always say no comment if you're not sure, and it's perfectly fine. And then he walked off. That was the first thing, the first lesson I got from Darren. I do think, though, that going through and getting to know Darren and getting to know the guys, they knew that I could play at that level because they had seen me. So that helped. That part definitely helped me a lot because they knew what they were going to get. So, yeah, I, I think I think it helped. You know, I found out later on that same note. I found out years later from Jim Fagosi. I know he's passed away now, but I found out later he called in five or six of those guys and said, hey, we're calling Stalker up tomorrow. So take it easy on him. Right. I'm not quite sure what he meant by that. <laughs> in other words, like whether it was hazing or what. I mean, what would they have done? Uh, we'll never know. But. I got along with those guys. My personality was the right for them because I was quiet and I asked questions. I wasn't intimidated, but I knew when to ask, what to ask, and I learned really fast. That's how I did it. So just what is it like being a part of that second half of that season and being a part of a team that is not just winning, but has really kind of brought baseball back in Philadelphia because it had been a long time, a, you know, a good decade since the Phillies, not just were good, but were really relevant. You know, how much fun was it? And 
to just kind of be in the middle of it and be surrounded by these guys? It was okay. I, the, the standard answer, it was great. Everything was going to be great. It was the best time of my life, baseball wise. All of that is true. Um, the ins and outs of it, kind of deeper into that, is these were the guys that taught me to play at the big league level. Okay. So I had, I'm up there as this 23 year old kid, and I've got, these older guys that have been, I don't want to say misfits. It's probably fair. Some of them were misfits or they weren't wanted by other teams and they kind of came together. They taught me how to play the game a certain way. And that was hard. Have fun in between, right? In between, they, they took things serious, but they, they had fun. They drank some beer, you know, all that kind of stuff. That wasn't my personality, but that's fine. They learned, I learned how to accept everybody. You know, some people drink, some people don't, some smoke, some don't, whatever. But when the game is on, I don't know that I played with a bunch of guys that were more intense and more focused than that crew. And I'm not, I'm not sugarcoating it. These guys, and that's, that's because they were veterans. So when I look back, yes, it was fun and it was amazing, but it was fun for the right reasons because it was a style of baseball. The fans got it. You got it. You looked at you like, I really like that style of baseball. Now imagine being a player that just like, I'm a huge fan of this style of baseball. Let's go. So then fast forward, I get traded and I go to Tampa and it's this mix of players and young, a lot of young players. Now it was my turn to try to teach them. And it became a challenge because the game started to kind of change at that time, started to sneak in some analytics and became a little, just a little bit of a different game. Not a worse game. It's just a very different game. So that part, I just, I look back now and maybe I think there's part of him that probably takes it for granted a little bit because we won. I'm like, oh man, this is going to be great. We'll just win every year and get to the World Series and never got close again. I loved that part of that. I loved that part of the team. I mean, we're super close now. Everybody still talks and everything. But man, to play every day, to see how intense a guy like John Crook, who you see on TV, and you're like, oh, he's a goofball. Not when he played, man. When he played, that guy was intense and focused, understood his job. Uh, he was encouraging all those things. So that part was just awesome. Is there a person, a guy on that team, you don't think gets the credit they deserve for how integral they were to that success? Um, there's probably a few guys. Milt Thompson would be one. I mean, everybody loves Milt now, but a lot of times I don't know if people talk about Milt. I mean, we had our outfielder, Jim Eisenreich, the guy we, our outfielders were platoon guys mm -hmm. on the corners. And now of course, everybody, you see platoons all over the place, but back then it was pretty rare. You have veteran guys, Milt Thompson, Pete Incavillia, who had played and been start and been studs. They had to accept a platoon, right? So Jim Fregosi, who I give a lot of credit to, here you have these veteran guys in the outfield, and he's asking them to split time. How do you keep them happy? You know, and it's a challenge. I think those guys accepted that. But Milt was one of those guys. Eisenreich's ability. Eisen, Jim was a quiet guy, but he had just an amazing year. That would be another guy. I'm sure there's guys in the pitching staff that, I mean, if I'd have to really think about it, because you're always going to hear about kind of the same, same guys. Mm -hmm. But Mickey was another guy, you know, that sort of thing. So I don't know. I mean, I could go on and on about the guys. It's tough, but that would be a couple of guys, Milton Icy. What was that postseason like? I mean, that Brave series was so dramatic. There were so many ups and downs. What was that that series specifically with Atlanta like to to win the pennant there? Wow. Oh man, let's see here. So many feelings go into that, right? So I will tell you this: the team, the 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 Phillies team, we just never felt out of a game. Right. So that was the trick is we always felt there was enough firepower we could get back in the game. And I'm not kidding about that. It really was one of those things. That's the beauty about the postseason, though. I think most of the teams have that feeling, but the Phillies were that that team. The Braves had so much firepower. So I think we had to really lean on some of our pitching and, and guys would go out there and they would struggle. You know, they were so good at forgetting about, you know, what happened that day, just turning the page. Similar to, to the team now, who, who the team in this year that we saw in 23. 
had a lot of really bad games and they had to turn the page quickly. But the series was exactly what I thought it was going to be with the Braves. And that was going to be an absolute dogfight. I mean, it was literally hit to hit. You try to just think about the moment at hand. If it's a bunt, that bunt's going to be a huge play and everything's going to be a huge play. The other thing I remember is just, and this is not just with the Braves, and I don't want to jump forward if you're going to ask about the World Series, but between those two, because there was only two series, right? Back then, right. it was just the NLCS, the World Series. I knew that certain guys were going to have great series. That's how you win those games. And certain guys stepped up. Dykstra certainly stepped up. Paul Molitor was a guy that stepped up. Um, you look at the Braves, and and they had their pitchers kind of stepped up. But that's that's why a team like the Phillies won, is certain guys just stepped up and had big moments. And Dykstra was certainly one of those guys. But Man, just it was just awesome. It was so much fun. And I, I also, again, I didn't know Philly, and I didn't know Philadelphia fans in the playoffs until then. And wow, what a show those guys put on, man. The Philly fans made such a huge difference, even back then, like they do now. So you guys, when you guys win it in game six, win the pennant, and Mitch strikes out Bill Pakoda, do you remember the emotions? Is it a blur, or do you have a distinct memory of how you celebrated, like, in the moment there? I don't. I don't have the memory. That's a great question because I see some video now. I see some video with me and Larry Anderson talking on the microphone and I'm like, I don't even remember that. I mean, it was just like, that happened? You know, that sort of thing. I remember going into the pile and like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? You know what I mean? Seriously. Now they all knew because they've been playing for 10 years and so forth. So I think just the overall stress of like, we did it. We did it. And we weren't supposed to do it because the Braves all year have been so good. Just the overwhelming feeling of success and achieving your goal is just was just so much fun. But yeah, I mean, a lot of it is a blur. You know, you go in and you celebrate. I remember getting some time with just the guys. That was a lot of fun, a lot of hugs and so forth with the guys. And just before the craziness began, you you really deep dive into, man, this is you did a great job. You know, you were awesome. And just everybody loving on each other. I remember that part a lot. But yeah, it was fun. Definitely fun. Did you still feel like a rookie at that point? Or did you pass a point where you no longer felt like one? That's a great question. And yes, I did feel like a rookie. <laughs> Those guys, when they bought that team, they did not they did not let me forget that I was still a rookie. I mean, it wasn't like they just said, hey, Stalker, you're that. No, I was a rookie. I was 23. And they made sure I knew oh, yeah, you're going to make sure you, you know, you carry my bag and you do this. And I felt like a rookie, but I definitely felt honored to be there. So very lucky to be there and be a part of it for sure. It was a great World Series. You guys come up short in some dramatic fashion. I mean, for me, I was a freshman in college, and there's a chair that I sat in for a good 25 minutes after the 15-14 game because I was just so, not just depressed, but mentally drained from that game. And then obviously the Joe Carter. Take me into the, the clubhouse after some of those downs in that. And you talk about bouncing back, but those were some real tough moments to, I mean, obviously the Carter thing ends it, but like, what's it like dealing with that? Well, let's, let me, let me take that. The 15 to 14 game was just really good baseball, the good and bad base. But again, talk about performances, Dykstra and Paul Molitor put on an absolute show. And, and even as a guy who was playing, I was like, holy cow, these guys are unbelievable what they were doing in that game. We lose the game, but literally I'm telling you, it was flushed. It was like, all right, guys, let's go. We got, we got, you know, we're not done yet. We're still, and it, that was how it was. Um, I think we felt like we as a team had played good enough to win. We just, it wasn't that we made mistakes that were huge. There were some, but I mean, it was more about, man, 
Smallwood or just outlasted us. I mean, literally it was kind of that thought. Now, fast forward up to game six, you know, we, we get the home run and it was a battle. It was a dogfight. A couple of runners got on and I'm like, oh boy, we could be in trouble here. Right. Cause this was, you know, this was kind of how it was going with Mitch. Mitch did that all year long. Right. The feeling was when Joe hit that ball, I'm not going to lie to you. When he hit the ball, I'm like, that is a fly out on the warning track. I truly, he hit it so high because it was this low fastball and he golfed it. When, as soon as it goes over the wall, it's literally like, that's it. Like it's over. You don't really know how to act when you lose the series. At least I didn't. Again, I was just a rookie. We all went into the clubhouse. Uh, It was super quiet. We kind of sat in our locker for a minute and literally maybe 30 minutes after the game, something like that, 25, 30 minutes, we started mulling around and high five and shaking hands, hugging, because I think at that point, as disappointed as we were, we definitely realized that we had accomplished way more than anybody ever thought we would. We didn't reach our final goal, but we had realized like, man, this team was awesome. And it was one of the most fun things, certainly out of my young career, but even for the older guys. So about 30 minutes after guys started mulling around and really, you know, figuring out what we had done in a, in a good way and try not to just dwell on, on the loss. Um, if that makes any sense, that no, was kind absolutely. of, that was kind of the mood in the, in the clubhouse. And to that point, when did you, really appreciate the impact you guys had on the city because I mean even though you didn't win the World Series that 93 Phillies team I think is one of the most beloved Philadelphia pro sports teams ever because of the makeup because of the underdog story because of the personalities and everything and obviously the success but you know like you said you're a rookie and you're not familiar with Philadelphia but like was there a moment five ten years later like whatever that you realized that you guys had left your mark and it's going to stay there yeah, you know, that's a good point. Yes. I, for me, on a personal level, for me, I got traded after 97. And uh, even up from 93 on, the, the fans had always liked me. We had a good relationship. And I had some bad years and some good years. But once I got traded and went down to Tampa, it, it didn't take long. I mean, we're, we're literally like, I, I'm down in Tampa for the start of the ra- Devil Rays in January. I'm in the dentist chair in downtown St. Petersburg. This was right before spring training. And the gal, the gal working on me, she says, uh, so what do you do for a living? I said, well, I you know, I play now with the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. And she goes, oh, is that a new soccer team here in town? And it was literally like, oh boy, I'm in trouble. Where, where am I? It was just a different, you, you go, when you switch out of Philadelphia, um, remember that's all I knew. I, I realized instantly after that 97 team, not only what 93 was because we won and it was, and I never got close again, but also the passion of the fans, the Philly fans, all of that I never experienced again until I got back into broadcasting a year or two years ago. I mean, that, that, that's been that long. And then to, to come back with the reunions, you know, we, you know, the closing of the vet and every year, these, these alumni weekends, you start to realize how close the team was and in the hearts of all the fans. And it's so much fun. Just like you, you and I are having this conversation and you can just bring up that first game of 20 innings and what happened. It's just ingrained. So, it, you know, you, you certainly realize when you leave Philadelphia, at least I did. So I was reading a story about you, I guess, had you signed at the end of your career, your last playing games were with the Angels, but had you signed with the Mets? And I read a story about you retiring that basically it sounds like you had a bunch of travel stuff happen. And then you just called, this is how the article came across. Then you just called and you said, you know what? I'm done. I just can't. Is that a fair representation of how you decided to walk away? I can't believe you found an article about that, but yeah, it's a hundred percent correct. I, yeah, I uh, I went in. See, it was after 2000. I'd had some injuries with the Angels. And so 
I end up signing, I don't know, a week or a week into spring training with the Mets. They wanted me to come down and be a utility guy. I'm like, great. I fly all the way down. I had to go into Orlando, diverted to Orlando because of weather. I rent a car or I get a driver. They drive me all the way down. I think it was West Palm Beach at the time, something like that. So I get in super late at night. I got bats and bag, the whole thing. By the time I wake up the next morning at six in the morning, I'm like, I do not want to be here. I didn't want to be there. I'd kind of Whatever reason, whether it was, I don't think I was ready as far as injury wise as well. Tampa kind of sucked the life of me out of it, just for whatever, you know. And so, and I had kids. So, yeah, I get a phone call at like 7 30, and it's from the PR guy at the Mets. He's like, hey, man, where are you? <laughs> and I was like, well, let me talk to you. I, I, th- I think I'm done, and I don't want to waste your time. Um, I think I need to just retire. I think I'm done. And, and he's like, okay. He was really cool about it. I packed up my stuff, I got on a flight and flew right back. Uh, now, I had been on the phone talking to some people and so forth, but that's kind of how I retired the first time. And I say the first time because I went back two months later, I started missing the game. I started feeling good. I'm like, man, I want to play. So I think it was the Dodgers call. I'm trying to remember if it was it was the Dodgers had called and they said, yeah, we had an injury to, I think it was Nefe Perez at the time playing short. He'd been injured with the Dodgers. We'd like you to come go to spring training uh, if you need to, or just at least go to AAA get ready and as quick as you can, and then we'll get you up here. I'm like, that sounds great. Cause I didn't really want to be in the minor leagues. And so uh, I get all my stuff. I go down to where he's, you know, to triple a, and I walk in and can you believe it was just full of veteran infielders. Basically they were doing tryouts. I mean, you just, everybody on the team, just whoever plays the best. And I'm like, well, that's not what I signed up for. Mm-hmm. I didn't sign up to come down here and try to try out and be here. Um, I know that sounds bad, but mentally that's where I was. And so I said, you know what? I'm out. I think I played in that night's game. I pinch ran. And then I think I, I, I met with them and they were not happy because they had to release. I think they released or let somebody go. But I'm like, look, man, this is what not what you told me this was about. So I went back home, took that year off. The next spring training, I went into camp with the Colorado Rockies and I got hurt in spring training. And that was it. I said, I'm done. So my wife basically said, look, if you come home this time, you're not going back. And I said, OK. And uh, that was official. That's why I think it was like, oh, two, oh, one. Right. in there was an official retirement. Long story for that. But yeah, that's how it is. Were you, and after that, like, were you comfortable mentally like that? No, it, no, <laughs> no, it, it, it took, you know, I think it's like this for everybody. It took about five years to get out of my system. Every spring training came around. I'm like, ah, I want to go back. Oh, I want to go back. Like I could. Right. I mean, I was now I was pretty young. I retired at 31. Maybe I could have the first couple of years. But yeah, it just wasn't. But yeah, it took a good five years. And then I started broadcasting. So that helped a lot. Right. That helped kind of divert some of that competitive stuff. But, yeah, it took a little while to get it out of my system for sure. How did your early years broadcasting, did it give you a better appreciation? And I don't want to say you appreciated or didn't appreciate the media, but for what sports media is all about. And I don't mean like the talk shows necessarily, but the guys that would interview, you know, the beat guys, stuff like that. Once you start seeing it from the other side, did it change maybe some perception or some things that you thought originally, but then you kind of understand why things happen the way they do stuff like that? A hundred percent. There's no doubt about it. And I think, I think anybody that tells you different, that changes from one career into, you know, opposing career, it absolutely is going to change your perspective just because it's an under, your understanding what, you know, everybody has a job and you understand that job, but it was also, it was twofold. So it was an understanding of the broadcasting side of how it works behind the camera. This guy's just trying to do his job. Not everybody is trying to, like, I'm not trying to, when I go talk to a player, I'm not there to blow up the player, right? I'm not, but when you're, I also understand as a player, you play with this certain edge and pressure that nobody else will ever understand for the most part, you know, the pressure of, performing and a lot of it is on the players themselves i used to put that pressure on myself 
but I wanted to perform for my team and I wanted to perform for the city and I'm getting paid a lot of money. There's this weird, your mind, regardless, your mind does that to you. I understand that players would play with blinders on. They just, they're just so focused. And so I understand that when they look at a guy, a broadcaster or a reporter and they're like, oh God, here he comes. He wants to ask about my air, you know? And so I get that feeling. Now you fast forward to when I'm broadcasting, I'm like, okay, I understand how he's going to feel. How can I still get what I need or help that person understand they're just trying to do their job? And so it's tricky. It is tricky, but I definitely get a different perspective. If I could go back and do it again, like Harry Cal, uh, uh, Harry, Harry was there and Whitey, those guys, they were so great. They were on our bus and we got to know them a little bit. I can't say that I really knew Andy Musser very well, right? So who did the radio for the Phillies? But he was at every game. He was there doing all that work. If I could go back and do it again, I would have made it. And this is what I would tell the players. Make it a point to get to know the guys that are on the radio and the TV. Get to know who they are and understand they're not trying to, we're not trying to blow them up. I wish I would have done that more. Now, and then also get a better understanding of who the beat reporters are, what their job is, their first names, and, and try to understand that they're just trying to do a job. Again, it's not going to happen. It's very rare that players get that because they're so focused on their career. And I understand both sides of it. And that's a long answer for that. So, but I'm sensitive that as a broadcaster now, I'm sensitive to that. I want to give them their space. I'm not a big fan of going into the locker room because I, I, that's kind of their space, right? It's already invaded enough by people doing their job. The reporters and stuff have to get their story. If I can go out and just say hi to him, get him to know, then I can open up a little bit. But yeah, I, I, it's definitely opened up my eyes a little bit on the other side. Kevin Stocker, this was so much fun. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, no problem, man. Anytime. And that will do it for this week's episode of One-on-One with Matt Leon, sponsored by your Delaware Valley Honda dealers. Make memories during happy Honda days. Want to thank former Phillies shortstop and current Phillies radio analyst Kevin Stocker for being our guest this week. Now, if you like the show, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. We would really appreciate it. You can follow the show on the platform formerly known as Twitter, now known as X at One-on-One Pod. You can follow me there as well at MattLeon1060. Thanks so much for listening and be sure to check us out again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.